Episode 45, Artist Shanina Raj. My name is Michael Delgado, and I'm your host. I come to you each week from the luxurious library bar in the magnificent Mayfair Hotel right here in downtown L.A. My appointment is seated at the bar, doing her polite best to ignore an unwanted suitor. The guy's too tight for this early in the evening, but not too tight to mistake my claim to his seat. He gratefully pours himself out of the chair. It's time to meet. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed. You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any. Oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. 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 My guest tonight is Shanina Raj. Raj is the artist behind Intercultural, a powerful traveling exhibition of her photographs that are accompanied by a sound installation scored by the Grammy-winning Nelly Furtado. The photographs, as you will hear explain, involve Raj posed in traditional women's clothing from some 21 nations. As a meditation on universal peace, exemplified in the strength of women, Raj's work has won high praise. None other than the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, declared intercultural the best of what our creative Canadians have to offer. And the mayor of Miami, Dan Gelber, declared December 8th intercultural day during the exhibition reception at Art Basel there. Please welcome Shanina Raj. Welcome, Shanina Raj. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. No, I'm excited to have you. And you had not been in the hotel before. No, it's lovely. I like this dark ambiance and mood lighting. Yeah, the library bar is kind of cool. And on Oscar night, it is appropriate. In like the late 20s, they had the first Oscar um, dinner or whatever, the governor's ball. Oh, wow. The first Governor's Ball was here in the Mayfair Hotel. Are we dancing later? We could. (laughs) We very well could. We very well could. So there's a tiny little ballroom in the back. um, Wow. And they have actually some cool shows that they put on here uh, with that. But, um, and it actually, it was before it was called the Governor's Ball. It was the very first, like, academy thing. And it was here. In, I think, 1928. I should know this. They're a sponsor. I don't know. But anyway, Mayfair Hotel, MayfairLA.com. <laughs> ballroom. Right, ballroom. Check it out. You can rent it. It's pretty cool. <laughs> the hotel is lovely, though. It really is. And the people that are hanging out here are very, like, super chill, so it's perfect. Yeah, no, it's fine. Well, thank you for coming and braving the Oscar traffic. But, um, so anyway, I'm happy to have you here, and I want you to talk about your Intercultural. Intercultural is a touring art collection where I've portrayed women from 25 nations wearing traditional finery that really honors ancestral heritage and unifies humanity as one human race. And um, within that, I've portrayed a woman from, let's say, Fiji, India, Pakistan. I could go through the list. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I saw it. It's really quite spectacular. And it's, um, but it's been quite a lot of places and it's going to more, right? 
Yes, exactly. So it did launch in Toronto and then went on to New York. We exhibited during the citywide New York uh, Freeze Art Fair and uh, it showed at Miami Design Preservation League Museum uh, during Art Basel and thankfully the exhibition was right. extended um, twice actually due to popularity which was fun and, uh, and I was actually honored with an Intercultural Day proclamation by the city of <laughs> yeah, Miami I Beach. Yeah, I saw that in Miami like that <laughs> which is pretty funny but but the, but the thing that's uh, that's the genesis of it if you will is because um look and as i look across at you now i mean your your features are not particularly definitive in one culture or another i mean you're quite comely i will say <laughs> but um you can do that you can don these the the accoutrement of other nations and look like that nationality Am I right? Or yeah, no? it's been quite interesting um, living here in Los Angeles where, for instance, I've <clears throat> been, I feel like, mistaken, let's say, um, for other cultures. Mm -hmm. And there's been maybe some good and bad experiences from that. So I would say um, being um, received as maybe being from Mexico um, hasn't been so positive and there's a number of experiences where <clears throat> someone just looked at me and based on the color of my skin I must be Mexican and somehow I'm like second grade citizen like I came out of a restroom in Beverly Hills one day and a lady just looked at me and was like can I get my table cleaned and I was like uh -huh. Yeah, I think you can if you ask someone who works here. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah right. Like, wow. So, you know, and even in my own neighborhood, you know, where I live, um, you know, up in the Hollywood Hills, there is some lady I'm driving and she blocks my car and starts yelling at me that I'm on a one-way street. And I'm like, what? I'm like, this isn't a one-way street. And she's like, what the fuck do you know? You don't live here. And I'm like, what? And wow. again, because of the color of my skin, so sure. I feel like I get, um, you know, these are examples, let's say, of where there has been some racial profiling, you know, and within um, the collection, I've portrayed all of these women, so 24 of them are from countries around the world, mm -hmm. where only one is sort of your, what do I look like as myself? Right. And certainly that brings to the forefront of the conversation, racial profiling, mm -hmm. and also... Um, introduces another part of the conversation of the double lives ethnic women are living and the facts are that we have this sort of one life that we live like as you see whatever it was cold today I wore a long sweater and um, but in cultural uh, environments um, women will dress in a very traditional manner for their own cultural events mm -hmm. whether it be grandma's birthday or you know a marriage or a birth um, even a death they would be in very traditional um, finery, which they would otherwise um, never wear in sort of their public persona in this sort of Western world or this Western hmm. nice mm -hmm. world, I guess we right. can say. And <clears throat> I think that, you know, there's been many circumstances where I've had people speak to me in Farsi. And I remember this man, I just politely smiled. I knew he was speaking in Farsi and had assumed I was Persian. And, and then he started getting quite angry with me. And then I was like, oh, he, he thinks I'm being rude by just smiling. And then, and then I said, you know, pardon me, but I'm not Persian. And I understand you're speaking Farsi, but I'm not fluent in Farsi. He just starts laughing. So he goes from being really angry to, 
wanting to carry my little bag in the store. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> help me find what I'm looking for. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's been many circumstances where I've been, I, I say, misunderstood. And it um, make, has made me realize, um, one, the sort of racial tensions that exist, mm -hmm. and certainly um, the mistreatment that exists within the cultural diversity and um, these barriers should, of disassociation. Should you grow up feeling like this, like uh, like you didn't have an identity? Because we were talking earlier, and you are from, you're Canadian. Or I grew up in Canada, so I was actually born in England mm -hmm. and raised in Canada. And mm -hmm. what um, inspired my family to leave England was my father, who's a uh, Fijian Hindi, um, and then that has its own Yeah, that's sort a of, great story, by the way. I, I did read that. Yeah. I do, I do do some homework. <laughs> yes. So um, they had decided to immigrate to mm -hmm. uh, Canada. Um, my dad's, you know, feelings were that there were no hope for me in England. He had mm -hmm. faced so much racism. Sure. That uh, he was hopeful that my being English and Indian, that I would sort of have this hope of living a life free of, um, you know, racism, essentially. And I always feel like the truth is you cannot run from racism. So yes, in fact, I did deal with a lot of racism and displacement. And um, it kind of felt like it went, you know, I, I didn't seem so bad as me. I guess when I was a child, it was kind of like you're in a little bubble with your family and right. things like that. Mm -hmm. And then to suddenly go where I have no one that's uh, even related to me. And so now I'm like this anomaly where I'm like this like half Indian, half English in this sort of world and uh, predominantly it was mainly white children and actually a lot of First Nation children. So thankfully with the huh. First Nations mm -hmm. were uh, very embracing and I did find a uh, solitude and sort of like family, felt like family and friends um, within the native communities there, which was, uh, you know, really uh, welcomed <laughs> by me because I felt like such an outcast for sure. But then on the other hand, it, um, you know, Fast forwarding to my life now and the work that I'm doing with intercultural, it's made me be able to appreciate being able to sort of quantify um, personal experiences in the sense that, like, you know, the facts are in cultures um, that have these sort of uh, war torn relations or animosities towards each other, they're uh, inbred, like they're taught to right. hate the other. Sure. And, uh, and examples may be. India and Pakistan, right. um, you know, maybe Greek and Turkish, Palestinian and Israeli. You know, it's it, funny because I, 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 I always, I've talked to people and I always think that like the world is cleaning up after the British Empire. I mean, we're just... <laughs> yes, we're still trying to clean that we're up. We're still cleaning up. It's like, all right, well, all right the sun never set on you guys at one point, but man, what a mess. Yes. And, but the facts are when um, people are raised with um, these sort of inherent hatred that they're taught. Right. Um, yeah. And it is taught. That's it the is weird taught. Thing. And yeah. so what has benefited me uh, as doing this work is that I'm, you can't put your finger on me. It's not like, oh, we don't listen to them because of their ethnic background. You know, so it's, it's kind of created this anomaly of like, oh, well, who is she and where is she from? And well, I don't know. And so it, it's kind of blurred these lines for people that's, I think, helped um, the message be able to be received for mm -hmm. peace and unity. And honestly, in each exhibition, people really do have a sense of self-realization. 
when they are surrounded by this work, it really creates a, a sense of disarmament. And then you realize, you know, what are your thoughts when you look at Mexican women? What are your thoughts when you look at Indian women? And, you know, you can go around the room, whether it's Fijian woman or mm -hmm. Palestinian woman, Iranian woman. What are these thoughts that you attribute to this culture? And then you start to realize that these are all you and not them mm -hmm. or her, you know. And um, within each portrait, you know, I, I'm really quite mindful with the... Um, continuity and the consistency so you'll see as you've seen you know the look in my eyes always the same my body language is always the same right. my facial expression is always the same um, and in that I'm always uh, emanating peace and unity my thoughts are always uh -huh. peace and unity and like this is that person's first time meeting someone from my culture it's my responsibility to ensure they feel safe and that they feel welcome and protected and, uh, in a, and in a sense, that creates this disarmament. They don't have to protect themselves from my culture. Huh. And I, it's interesting, too, because the, um, you know, the, the signifiers of the culture are not, I mean, when they're distilled, are not all that different, right? I mean, well, there's different color. I mean, there's colors and, like, but, I mean, if you distill it or deconstruct it, there, you know, there are these, right? I mean, there's certain well, cultural been, signifiers and that are universal, is I guess my point. Well, it's interesting to, with each one comes with an essay. So I, and the essays are really intended to further enhance this message of peace mm -hmm. and unity and knowledge, right? And, um, and respect uh, for that culture. And it's been quite interesting to see the cross-pollination that exists in our history. Of, and how, um, let's say, um, people from India, who I think are, you know, known for their very ornate beadwork and their saris, and it's identifiable, you know that that's from India. And then to learn that actually their saris were just plain. It wasn't until the whole Silk Road mm -hmm. happened and there was a mm -hmm. lot of trade between Iran and uh, India that they were the ones that introduced the beadwork. And the, so again, when you look at the Iranian woman, she has this um, shawl-like headpiece that comes down, and it's almost identical to what you would think that that piece of fabric was from India. Right. But actually, it originated in Iran. Yeah, so this is kind of my point, right? Like, yeah. I mean, even though you've gone from the, the, the Middle East to you have Fiji mm -hmm. and, and throughout the world, right? You, like, go around the world. I mean, there are certain pieces. I mean, it, they're quite different, but at the same time, if you take the time, there are unifying elements. Yes, and it's meant to feel unifying. You know, and that's the, the size, again, the, the body language, the expression, all of that is meant to unify everyone's cultural identity and recognizing that we're still one human race. Mm -hmm. And um, each one definitely has its own reason for why these outfits were chosen or what they Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Right? I mean, because you could pick, I mean, if you're going to like do that like you did, and you, do you, and how do you decide like this is the ultimate Iranian woman? Well, each or culture. What signifies the ultimate Iranian? Woman? 
Right. So um, Iran specifically has its own um, identity in the sense that well, it doesn't I'm, have... Well, whatever. Um, yeah. So for that culture, because each one is different, to be honest. And right. each one, yeah, for, um, sure. for that culture specifically, it's more like more color, the better. Huh. And um, and so when I um, I worked with the Farhang, um, Farhad uh, organization here in Los Angeles, and they um, they provided the outfit. So they had a very traditional formal. So with every culture, I work with like an authoritarian within the community that can really guide me mm-hmm. and ensure that every detail is absolutely correct. Like in the Armenian woman, it's very specific as to how far the hat goes down, how long those braids are, and all of that sort of stuff. And, 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 but would they? But but so like if you're picking the quintessential character from any of these countries that's there's got to be some pushback right like well yes that's the traditional lebanese person well i try to central like Like in greece for example there's 13 regions right so i chose the central region which everyone would recognize as central greece so in those cases i i always try and go to sort of the city center and what would sort of the city center where they've all kind of come and gone and understand, um, recognize. And, you know, the important fact is um, when working on these that, you know, with working with authoritarians that when, you know, there's certainly this uh, concern of misappropriation, right? Right. So um, for cultural appropriation, I ensure that um, when I'm working with someone who is trustworthy and respected within their community, uh, two, all of the materials that I'm wearing are traditional and authentic. Uh, three, that they're actually worn so specifically down to the detail that it really um, is like documenting that culture. And uh, four, the intention, right? The intention is uh, setting forth this collective voice of peace and unity from cultures around the world to show that they stand in peace and unison is um, you know the greater picture the greater picture of it all so um, and you know there's many great details along the way like I, I feel like um, each one again has its own sort of enduring message and quality about the outfit that makes it unique to that region and I had thought that Moroccan woman was really powerful working on that one she's just so adorned in all these necklaces and she, she she looks like a desert princess to me. Like mm-hmm. she's her even her head is like it's like a molded crown but covered. And um the gems that uh hang about whether it's off her sleeves and and some of the details in the necklace are so um telling. And uh she wears a hand of Fatima, for example, which is a, a public symbol to show that she's not harboring animosity for war-torn relations oh, that are incredible. And from what does ancestors. That look like? The hand of Fatima, you may have seen it. It's it's kind of this upside down hand. It just fingers are closed together, the thumb is slightly out, and it's kind of more like a silhouette type shape. And it's flat and it usually has a gem on it, mm-hmm. which is to ward off evil spirits. Right. And, and this is where they This is Morocco. And they wear it. Um, this is a break, uh, uh, worn as a charm off a necklace. Oh, I see. Oh, yes, and I have seen that. Okay. Yeah, you've I'm probably sorry. seen the hand of Fatima. Um, it's celebrated in other cultures as sure. well. Um, and what's also um, beautiful within her dormant is like the egg-shaped necklace represents fertility, mm. and um, the other sort of um, 
it, it's like this ruby red eyelet that's also about warding off evil spirits. So they have a very sort of spiritual presence and philosophy within mm. their daily lives. And uh, the, the fluorescent-like threading um, of these um, symbols that span over the breasts are actually used to be tattoos on their face. Oh, wow. But when they were invaded and then... Um, during sort of this pan-Arab expansion and, you know, they were, quite honestly at the time, they were kind of forced into this sort of Islamification mm -hmm. um, philosophy and, um, and they resolved when tattooing is illegal mm -hmm. or banned and uh, so they resolved to then translating those tattoos that were otherwise meant to be on their face onto their chest mm -hmm. but in clothes. So there's so many, I feel like, great details of this. Again, this yeah, cross-pollination. Yeah, I was going to say, well, I, it, what occurs to me is like, so this is a tribalism that's uh, exquisite and, and, you know, gorgeous in its, uh, in its expression, but also uh, an entrance into the world. Yes, and I, I just, I always just found that, again, so particularly special in the sense that they're openly expressing peace. And they have a culture that found resolve and maintained their sort of cultural identity amongst all the change that happened over the centuries and right. over generations. And they still honor that to this day, which I just think it's just, um, you know, there's many beautiful qualities about each one of the cultures, but specifically for that culture, I just thought that that was quite astounding. Yeah, no, it, okay, so where do we see the, all this? How do we um, find these things? Well, it is a touring exhibition. So actually the next exhibition is going to be, I'm so excited, going back to Bergamont Station oh, where nice. I got my start in Los Angeles many moons ago. And I'll be showing with Lois Lambert's gallery. Mm -hmm. And the opening is May 16th. Perfect. And um, it will run until July 11th. So I'm pretty excited and honored and still kind of pinching myself because I love her gallery and um, it never occurred to me that I would be exhibiting there. I actually was taking a friend there who's visiting from Canada. I'm like, well, we're in Santa Monica. I have to show you my favorite gallery in the whole city. And um, lo and behold, Lois was there and we started talking. and. Um, I had met her years ago when mm -hmm. I was represented mm -hmm. by another gallery at Bergamot Station and she'd remembered meeting me and asked what I was working on and I guess uh, the long and short of it is that she, um, when she saw the work, I remember she sat all quiet and I was like, oh my god, what is she thinking, the woman I admire so much, what is she thinking? And, um, and then she says, this is a cultural movement and I was like, yes it is! <laughs> <laughs> so now I've coined cultural movement thanks to Lois Lambert and yes, I'm well, pretty but excited. It, but it's been touring the world and you've been yes huge accolades with, from uh, even Trudeau has named it. What, what yes. was that? that was, the best of what we can expect from our Canadians or our there you go. Canadians, something uh, like uh, that. The, uh, <laughs> I was like, awesome. yes, it is the best, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's give, a, let's give a plug. So this is... How do we find out about this? This is to uh, learn more about the work. You know, obviously, you can go to my website at shaninaraj.com, which, which is I will spell, spell <laughs> exactly yeah, S H E I N I N A 
raj.com and um, I have been posting um, on Intercultural Worldwide on Instagram and Shanina Raj Art on Instagram as well. And then, but that does are there underscores in that or no? No. Okay. No, there's no underscores, and I know it's a mouthful, but hopefully, if you just type in S H E I, Instagram will help you. <laughs> yeah, they're so helpful. Beyond, like, you know, the website, of course, the Instagram stuff, and um, but. But then the gallery is going to be what? What is the gallery? Well, Bergamot Station is located at 2525 Michigan Avenue. Sure, but I mean the gallery and the times. So you, yeah. Well, so. May 16th is when it opens. Okay. And so that's opening night. And um, I I'm think assuming that, that's a Saturday. I think it's yeah. a Saturday, if I remember correctly. And uh, so if you can make it, please come. And uh, other than that, it will be running up for about two months from there. So, you know, if someone doesn't make it to the opening for sure if they're in the area I would definitely say go and see it, it across the world that it's shown at every time uh, people experience this work or many people who experience the work are brought to tears and when I first saw uh, people responding so emotionally in Toronto I thought wow is everyone just really emotional but it has <laughs> sound involved too which yes. I don't think we've talked about no so that there is sound so there um there's a collaboration by Nelly Furtado right and uh, so she was inspired by four of the cultures so Indian woman uh, Moroccan woman Hawaiian woman and Mexican woman and each for their own reason so Moroccan she does a lot of charity work in Kenya and actually the drumming is um pretty much the same from Morocco to Kenya and um, uh, she speaks in Spanish she's won Grammy the Latin Grammy so Mexico made sense for her and Hawaii she's Portuguese so actually you know when we kind of identify with Hawaiian music we're hearing the ukulele and that's actually native to Portugal and um, and then when she said pick one culture I knew she had uh, really had explored uh, Indian singing and you know that's part of my heritage so I was like well I think you should do Indian women then and there's so much like you know between the sitar and the chimes and all this sort of fun stuff you can do vocally that I'd heard her done before I felt like it'd be fun for her to uh, include that culture so four individual sound art pieces each inspired um, by the culture and traditional instruments native singing styles um, have a unique start time and it plays in unison. So your your name though, the, the Raj part of your name, is that actually your name or do you, is that yeah. part of the Raj Raj? Um, Raj is my maiden name, yes. And you know, in my ancestry, um, you know, unfortunately, we, we've dated it back to 1891 that my great-great-grandmother was kidnapped from Goa. Yes, I read that. Yeah, from a British officer, and he tricked her with candy to get onto his boat, and unfortunately, um, you know, lured her into a shipping crate and sealed the shipping crate and shipped her to Fiji. Later, anchored at the port of Latoka, that's where, you know, she disembarked the ship and then continued her life as a slave in the sugarcane plantations of Latoka, Fiji. So that's where the sort of Fijian heritage comes in, mm -hmm. um, in my ancestral lineage. And um, although, you know, there was no mixing, let's say, you know, the Fijians who were sort of are no, known for being KBT to the Indians were never allowed to mix, like would be death, you know? Oh. So, um, 
And my great-great-grandfather was also a child slave in that same sugarcane plantation. And uh, he was nine, she was six. By the time she was 11, they married. And uh, eventually, you know, slavery was abolished. But where do you go and work? Anyways, they're there. <laughs> so it's like abolished, but it's the same sort of living circumstances, slightly. Um, and, you know, generations later when... Um, the British, you know, it was a colonized island, and they'd return. They were returning the sort of power of self-governance and um, to Fiji. And um, my father and his family got on one of the last ships out of Fiji, and were officially recognized as British subjects. And there was no first and last names, so my grandfather's name was Sue Raj. So they just said, okay, hey, yeah, your name's Raj. Truncated to Raj, yeah. Yeah, so that's how we ended up with the last name Raj. Uh, okay, got it. Alright, so what's next? Gosh, what's next? Well, I am working on the essays. And each portrait... These are the essays for the portraits yes. that are still touring. Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, so um, I took 2019 off of touring just because I felt like I was being quite pulled in many directions and mm -hmm. I couldn't finish the work and I really wanted to focus on uh, Israeli woman and I had come to the resolve I was at a um, one of my openings and it was in Florida um, at the art fair on the water and uh, a lady had come in and she sees the work and often women when they see the work they announce their ethnic background and insist that I portray their culture too. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> so this woman was from Israel and she had said, you need to portray Israeli woman. And I was like, absolutely. I said, I just can't figure out what she looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so she sits there and thinks about it and then she, um, she comes to a resolve. She's like, she needs to be wearing the Israeli Defense Forces uniform. Oh, and I was like, what? This is about peace and right, a military. Right. Like, I just struggled with um, my own stereotype at the end of the day. Well, and it, this goes to my point. It's like, wh how do you pick the, the quintessential whoever? Right. Yes, so this was difficult, I think mainly because I was struggling with uh, my own stereotype right. attachment, which is what I'm challenging to other people. And I realized, so I, I literally took a year. I cannot tell you how much reading and research I'd done, how many people I talked to, still at square one, as in zero. Like, I can't figure out what this woman looks like. And I'm sitting there having a conversation and I realize and I'm telling the story about this woman and I've been struggling ever since that to make this woman look like someone else. And, um, I, and then I realize that I'm struggling with stereotypes here, that she's right. And so the more I researched uh, this woman in uniform, I come to learn that actually She's um, taught to be a peacekeeper, and really her number one As reason, an idea person. Yes. Her number one thing is, is self-protection. Hmm. That was first and foremost for her military-grade training because she would have military-grade offenses upon her. So that was number one, and then number two was to restore peace. And I was like, wow, that is beautiful, and challenging at the same time and uh, then so once I had come to that resolve it took me a, 
well, solid especially year. Especially even with you, with your half British, you know, and the partition and all that. Yes, and, the partition of Palestine, exactly, right. which led obviously to the civil war, which eventually mm -hmm. led to the state of Israel, and you know, there's a lot of history there. And again, you know, women took up arms, and. Uh, you know, and this is, you know, you have that's to... The, the, the Sabra thing came up with that, right? Uh, yeah, I, I think for me, like, uh, these women also had already endured so much, hmm. you know, as far as, um, obviously, genocide with the Holocaust, sure. right, you know? Right, right, right. And here they were um, now facing this threat again of extermination. And um, given the circumstance and sort of the history up to date, you know, there was no choice for a woman but to defend herself. And just, they were outnumbered as well, right? So the woman protected herself and certainly fought for her rights, for freedom and existence uh, in that landscape. And um, eventually it led to you know, the state of Israel and... Right, but that's not unusual from the other women that you've portrayed. And so how did you come up with, what What did you ultimately define as the Israeli woman, or have you? I, I have, and it took a year to put it together. Um, I, I, I looked to um, the last parade in 1973, where she's wearing um, a khaki shirt a khaki skirt and um, and has um, an Uzi with her and it's a very specific hat um, the shoulder tag They're, each one has its own details the, so it's the, a militant view it is it is and I actually um, shot that in Vegas I went hmm. and shot that at battlefield <clears throat> so I could have a military grade weapon as sure. in an Uzi a real Uzi and I uh, was able to, you know, do a pop-up studio within their hmm. space. They mm -hmm. gave me a real Uzi. I was able to complete the portrait there. And it was quite profound, um, you know, especially when I also have portrayed Palestinian women. So Yeah, I was going to ask about that, but go ahead. Yeah, so I feel like I'm pretty um, excited to um, help emphasize this peace statement that I see even um, women in both Palestine and in Israel are banding together and creating this sort of united front as women um, that want to respect and honor and sort of um, not harbor these animosities of war-torn relations but move forward into the future in a more harmonious tone. And uh, so I'm Definitely, I uh, feel like between those two, it, it's a, a strong statement of peace and unity, and hopefully... But we'll, you're wearing an Uzi. Yes, I do have an Uzi in that picture. Yes, I'd never held a gun before, to No, be but how did, so how do you reconcile that message? Well, um, at the end of the day, she is armed to defend herself if needed. So I referenced the parade where they had uh, a parade for a national, like a sense of national pride that was really meant to um, emphasize security and strength, honor, respect, and uh, women were equally 
celebrated and respected in that field. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that's one of the most powerful things about the Israeli culture is um, that women are so highly regarded and yeah. respected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, for the women that I've worked with along the way creating this work, um, that's a very strong sentiment that it's important for them to know that their culture really respects women mm -hmm. and the woman because of mother and because of teacher and because of the life-giving and um, all of the fact that she's also a protector and uh, the empowerment that she can protect herself mm -hmm. and you know it's unfortunate you know for me another perspective I can't help but have is when you see someone like Hawaiian women who's in, you know, leaves and bark. Brian, beautiful, and just the, the and mother whole, goddess. The yeah, mother goddess, yeah, who's afforded this sort of very natural presence, and she's not threatened, she's safe. She doesn't have to worry about protecting herself to that degree. Yes, I, I feel like there's always a sense of... Um, protection which is warranted and I always do my best to honor and protect that culture as well mm -hmm. and I give each culture um, the same sort of love care and intention um, as I do for each other and ultimately it's serving a greater message of peace and unity and um, for the viewer helping that viewer come to a self-realization of peace and unity and they're judgment and their sensibility of their environment around them. You know, I, I just, I feel there's so many uh, barriers of disassociation that come from lack of knowledge and experience and a personal experience that I feel that intercultural provides. And I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. And <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming here and braving the Oscar traffic. Thank you, Hollywood. Hollywood. Yes, Hollywood Boulevard. Oh my God. No, it's insane. <laughs> Sorry to send you back into that. Yes, I know. I'm going to have to take some detour. All <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. No, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to A.G. Geiger Presents, Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. My guest tonight was Shanina Raj. Intercultural will open on Saturday, May 16th at the Lois Lambert Gallery in Bergamont Station. You can learn more about this work and about Raj at ShaninaRaj.com. And that's spelled S-H-E-I-N-I-N-A. R-A-J.com, ShaninaRaj.com. It's really worth a look. The, the photographs are really quite beautiful. And uh, I'm anxious to hear the, the sound uh, from Nelly Furtado that goes with it. Uh, so hopefully we'll see you at the show.
AG Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the Mayfair Hotel, music and artist management company Regime 72, and AG Geiger Fine Art Books. Check us out at MayfairLA.com, Regime72.com, and of course, AGGeiger.com. Thanks for listening.